What's your professional choice of bread for said sandwich? Uh, whatever's there. I'm not really choosy. He's equal opportunity. This is Jacob Ross with JLB Morelia. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. You're listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody. It's episode 103 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm joined by Phil Wolf. Hello. Who completely dropped the ball on that intro. I didn't know. You always introduce <laughs> yourself and Jake, and I'm, I don't I, want to I, speak I, for Jake, I you don't, know? Uh, I don't know. I thought you could feel it through the airwaves. I mean, I usually can. Tonight, I dropped the ball. Oh, I'm, 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 it's I'm all the wind. Stars- I'm too starstruck from our guest tonight. <laughs> uh, we are uh, we're here. This episode is brought to you by MP Cages and Exotics, um, and Steve Snakeuary. So you need awesome cages or racks. Sean will do custom work. I have a Condro Condro rack that is custom that I'm sure you guys are probably sick of hearing about, but it it's, it's awesome. too cool to not talk about. It's a really nice rack, man. I'm super happy with it. It's like exactly what I need for that age. The only issue now right. is that they're, you know, within the next year, they're going to outgrow it and they're going to need to be bumped up to something more permanent, which I have procured something else. Um, just got to figure out where it's going to go. So, uh, yeah, Steve Snakeuary too. Uh, Venom hot sauces. If you haven't tried them, you need to go grab you some, check them out. Whether you like hot sauces or not, there's something for everybody. <laughs> We always recommend the cottonmouth sauce because that's that's the best one of the group. Um, but as Phil was saying, we are joined by the man himself, Tim Morris. The man, the myth, the legend, the the blue Condro guy. <laughs> and he was on the Condro cast. I think you might have been. You weren't the last episode of the Condro cast I did, but you were probably second to that. I think. Yeah, that was a couple of years back, right? Uh, it's been at least a year, but mm-hmm. yeah. So it's uh, time to do another one. It is time, and Luke and David Brahms keep uh, hounding me about doing one, and it's just been a time thing. <clears throat> That's all. So it will happen. I don't know what we're gonna do, but I think we were just talking about doing an episode where we we're just kind of bullshitting and talking about what our plans are for the season, sort of what's been going on, what's new, what's what's happening so we shall see but uh, since i'm expecting chondro eggs quote unquote expecting hoping for i guess is probably a better word uh fingers come, crossed come the end of december i figured since i talked so much smack about doing mi uh with the first clutch a couple years ago that now i'm going to actually do it and who better to talk to about maternal incubation than the guy who did it out of necessity, more or less. And that yeah. would be Tim. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, so, if anybody wants to hear, like, I guess sort of the background for, like background story and stuff, how you got into snakes and whatnot, I, I'm fairly certain we covered that in the ConjuroCast. Um, or, if you want to hear about how, or read about how Tim got into Conjures to begin with, in the... Which issue was that? That was like two issues back. That's the, uh, yeah, uh, October. Yeah, 
Tim did an article on Mr. Blue, which is like the uh, the pilot animal that started the whole Blue Chondro project. So it's a pretty cool story. It was also uh, filled up a lot of pages. It was nice. Um, Revolutionary. It was very in-depth. I liked it. Yeah, I was surprised it took so many pages. It didn't seem like that much when I shot it to you in word form. <laughs> well, I tried. Hardly I mean, worth it. Yeah, and I, I like it doesn't bother like when it's a digital magazine like that. Like you don't have a cap. Like we're not really paying per page necessarily. Like that doesn't really affect anything. So yeah, you know whatever. I tr- also try to like the more pictures the better. I try to sort of balance it out between you know the visuals and then the actual you know text and you know so. It could have been condensed a lot more, but I wanted to include as much as I could picture-wise, you know, especially with the ones that you sent that are, you know, historical and go way back and all that stuff, so. <sighs> Phil, are you smoking a, Are you smoking a cigar? I am smoking a Liga Privada number nine. Mm. The Toro. I am my... I have an LFD 25th anniversary that I'm kind of already struggling with. It keeps going out. Yeah, sadly, that'll happen sometimes. Tim, you smoke cigars? I uh, do not. I tried to get him uh, to smoke with me at Carpet Fest 2019. <laughs> he's like, nah. Dude, it was like, yeah. I, it was you and James. And I was like, I got extra cigars if y'all want one. And you were like, mm. I was like, okay. I'd be surprised that James wouldn't have gone for it, but. Usually a little more games. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that was also like when I first met you and stuff, so I didn't know if you'd go for it or not. It's just another classic example of how we always talk about how in this in this community, you really do get to, I don't want to say meet your heroes, but like it's just another example of it. We love it. Mm-hmm. Like, where else can you, you know, find someone as – you know, revolutionary is Tim at a party and hang out and talk snakes, you know? And you I, guys give me a little too much credit. <laughs> See, you said that, though, <laughs> in the article. You were like, you know, I didn't really have a hand in, you know, as much of a, a hand in it as people like to think I do. But, I mean, if you, th- I th- was thinking about it today. Like, if you hadn't bred, you know, what was Mr. Blue and those original animals, we wouldn't, uh, who knows what we would have now. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I mean that's 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 definitely true. I mean, I you know, I definitely was in the right place at the right time, but um and you know, like I mentioned, I think I did in the article, uh I'm pretty certain that had Trooper known sort of what the and he was kind of going for some things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um but of course it hadn't been produced before, so he didn't really know and he had a bunch of other you know, promising animals and bloodlines that could have you know, and, and and eventually done the same thing. Um, so, what was it? What was ironic is, it, and has been part of many stories I've told, mostly verbal, but did put in print. Was you know that the the sire to that litter was, you know, a runt mm-hmm. was the smallest founder um, of the trooper had hatched out. It was a twin. Egg mate died. And he and he basically gave it to me because he 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 literally told me you know I know you'll give it a good home it probably won't amount to much I mean that's <laughs> pretty much I mean that's pretty much quote unquote you know what yeah, I mean famous last so, words um, yeah right um, so definitely the little engine that could that's for sure but when you bred him down the road did you notice any more like 
was the runtiness sort of something that he had sort of passed on? Did you notice anything abnormal no, about that clutch? Were, yeah, all of his babies were pretty normal sized. Okay. Um, I think he was just small because of being a twin. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I don't think anything else other than that really, you know, explained this initial hatch size. Mm-hmm. Was the other twin a considerably sized difference or no? You know, I never found that out. Uh, the egg mate died, and I don't know that he that it had even hatched. Oh, okay. So it just it died somewhere. I guess was it late term then? I'd assume. Well, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. To be honest, I don't think I ever asked the question. Hmm. All I remember is Trooper basically said the egg mate died. This one survived. Smallest one I ever, you know, raised up at that point in time. Okay. So. And just to sort of give everybody some context, this is like mid to late 90s, correct? Yeah, so I, I acquired that animal in, uh, or actually at the Twin Towers when the Breeders' Expo was held there before it moved to Daytona. Mm-hmm. And it was the summer of 92. And uh, the the legend males that it became known as, um, he was hatched out in February of 92. And then I acquired him, and I guess it was August. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, a lot of people, like, we're kind of spoiled now in the sense that incubators are not hard to come across or hard to make. But, like, back then, you were mentioning in the article as well that, uh, like, incubators were pretty much sold on almost, like, a academic or scientific level, and they, they weren't something that was readily available. Yeah, so, I mean, partly a victim of just limited resources at that point, both in terms of, um, you know, incubators, there weren't that many options. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before AV even um, came out with their incubator. Um, but, you know, the only two people I knew to talk to about anything related to, you know, hatching chondros was Eugene or Trooper, and... Um, you know, and Eugene, I don't know if you've met him, but he can be an interesting guy to try to get some details out of. And, you know, and Trooper in his own right the same way. Um, and both of those guys had former scientific incubators. And, you know, both of them, you know, there for a while, you know, uh, worked out a lot of the details related to the um, artificial incubation, although later turned out there turned out to be several different mousetraps. I mean, you know, Rico came along with the kind of constant temperature uh, regiment where Troopers and Eugene's incubation regiment kind of followed Troopers' research with uh, incubating females. Mm-hmm. So he basically um, designed their artificial protocol after what he uh, learned through doing, you know, temperature measurements of several females, whereas, you know, the the first two te- the first two weeks were, you know, in the low to mid 80s, and then the female cranks it up in weeks, um, you know, two through six, and then, you know, kind of tapers it back down again near the end. So that was kind of their original, you know, protocol. And then, of course, like I've mentioned earlier, Rico came along with a kind of a steady 80, you know, was it 86.2 or something like that. Um, you know, throughout the entire term. And even up until that point, 
you know, Trooper and Eugene both swore that you couldn't, you know, separate the eggs, couldn't get them wet, mm-hmm. um, you know, both of which weren't really, you know, accurate. Um, you know, Larry Kenton, the guy who runs some shows up here and does a lot of work with, you know, books and such. Um, I remember going to his place once to pick up something and he had just um, had some condor eggs and he basically separated them out and stuffed them in vermiculite just like he did a, with all this colubrids. Yeah. You know, and I remember looking at it like, yeah, right, they're never going to hatch. And they <laughs> did, you know. Nice. So, um, you know, so I think, you know, Trooper and Eugene kind of went about things in a scientific way mm-hmm. and as such kind of had a very precise you know, method to their madness in terms of artificial incubation. Um, well, let, me, let me ask you, if I may, real quick. These yeah. original scientific incubators, was it was it something designed for laboratory use by, like, laboratory engineers and stuff? Or was it basically you guys just kind of knowing how you want to build it and, like, like homemade garage-type stuff? Oh, no, I didn't build anything. <laughs> the Forma Scientific, their, their um, science lab, um you know incubators Mm -hmm. and um and i think trooper got his there was a place down in dc um that kind of wholesaled out used ones that hospitals no longer used um i know there was also a picture in the um reproductive husbandry book of ross and marzek of a like a human incubator you know the one where where you have the two holes for the hands to go in you know like a baby They utilize that, but I think they use that more for maintaining temperatures for the for, for the newborn um, babies more than incubating the eggs. Um, but back then, I mean, it was just the formers were the only ones I knew of. Other than that, you had, you know, like the hovibators, which was like the, you know, they were like the plexiglass ones, mainly, I think, designed for bird eggs. Yeah, those those styrofoam dome looking ones. Well, they had those, yeah, and then they had, you know, they had the one with the styrofoam. Hovabaters. Almost like a, you know, like a, a shipping box insert converted right. to a uh, incubator. And then they also had like a all clear plastic one um, that they came out with later. And then Avi, who made incubators originally for birds, uh, came out with the uh, two cooler incubators. Um, specifically, they were for Condros, I know Trooper and several other people had, you know, a hand in the design of the egg boxes and everything. And that's where people were, you know, perfecting mm-hmm. the um, no substrate method. Yeah. Very cool. But all that to me back when I first started was way too complicated. And I didn't have the money for, you know, a form assigned, you know, form of incubator, which I think even used ones were running for, you know, like $4,000. Oh, I believe it. And they're massive, you know. Yeah. They're 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 big. Um, I mean, you need you need help just moving those things around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure. I don't know if it's the same company name, but I guess the company that that does still produce those. Uh, I was looking at them, and because they have ones where the egg rotation stuff for birds, you can remove it for yeah. whatever reason. I guess because reptile people jump on the bandwagon, and still, even even today, they're like three four grand for like the upright, which to me seemed a little crazy because you could still get like a hot box from sea serpents of equal size and volume for half the price, you know, More right. Than, less than half. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I think habitat systems came out with an incubator that worked out pretty well. Then a few people like buddy Bashemi, I know became really good at converting like wine coolers mm-hmm. into 
incubators that uh, work really well. Yeah, I mean that's what I use now, and I'm I'm happy with it. Yeah, I haven't had any issues. It seemed to work out okay with that first clutch. Uh, and I mean that's what I got the cyania eggs in right now, and I don't know. I uh, like I said, I definitely want to do MI this time now that I've kind of been through the the initial process of of neonates and everything like that. So, um, but I mean back then, like, what did you do? when you first paired those chondros and like, what'd you do to prepare for that? Like, is there anything in particular you did to prepare for that maternal incubation the first time? Yeah. So I picked, you know, troopers brain a lot um, because a lot of their early successful breedings were maternally done. And um, so he kind of helped out a little bit with giving me some tips about, you know, setup and design, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some of the, important things that he kind of conveyed to me was, you know, make sure that, um, you know, the ambient temperatures don't get too warm. Um, because he said, you know, which is true when the eggs are formed up in a mass after, you know, several weeks, the embryo is going to start producing their own heat. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy to cook the eggs, especially the ones on the interior. And so, you know, that's what I was, you know, explaining to you and, you know, a couple of our correspondences earlier about, you know, air on the side of cooler than warmer because mm-hmm. the female will make up the difference. Right. And, um, you know, so that was a big thing. The other big thing he, he, he emphasized was, you know, making sure that the humidity, the ambient humidity stayed high, but then the eggs inside the box and the, I use sphagnum. Uh, remain dry Mm -hmm. so you know that was another thing is keeping you know the substrate that the females on with the eggs dry inside the egg box and that's um so what i basically did was i put the egg box on one side and then filled the rest of the uh was you know one of those two by two by two um near the shed cages i used Mm -hmm. and um filled the other side with with several you know, inches of vermiculite and basically kept that sopping wet. And then I had a heat pad underneath the opposite side of the nest box to try to keep trying to drive the humidity levels up. Right. Um, and then on the, on the top part we used, that was, this was even before, you know, heat panels, um, we were using, um, you know, the, like the ZooMed infrared heat lamps. And so that was off to the side too, on basically the same side as the um, uh, the the heat pad. Yeah. God, I can't imagine having to do that in a two by like in a two cube. Yeah, it actually worked out pretty well. You know, I used as the picture showed. You know, one of those little rubber made rough totes. Yeah. And you know, and the female did well. You know, um, I, I I mean I. You know, I would have been screwed, honestly, if, if she didn't, you know, do her motherly thing. Oh, because yeah. I, if she had I, I had no plan. I, had, I didn't have any plan B. Mm-hmm. And were those were those neodesha cages the ones that opened from the front where the whole panel kind of folds forward towards you? Or were they still sliders type? No, they had um, hinge doors. Okay. So, like, like, double doors that open out or, like, the ones no, that... No, just, oh, just a single door. The, the one single door, yeah. Yeah, it's a single door. It's a, it was a cube with like the rounded edges, like the rounded corners. Yeah, no, I I remember them. I yeah. just I want I didn't I want to make sure I painted the picture in my mind correctly how he had it set up. You know. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and I had, you know, um, several, you know, probes set up in various places. And I think, Justin, I sent you the, you know, I mean, the entire data set for all the temperatures. I was mm-hmm. pretty, uh, you know, I was pretty manic about collecting all the temperature data that I could. Well, how much did Trooper collect when he was doing his? I mean, surely he had been working on that for a while, so I'd imagine he had a pretty good amount of Yeah, of and even, you know, even with his setup there was much more sophisticated where I was using, um, you know, like, you know, regular remote thermometers that you would buy, you know, say Radio Shack back then. Mm-hmm. Um, he was using um, thermocouples, you know, uh, specifically there's a brand called Atkins. Um, he was using those and thermocouples are basically, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but they measure surface temperatures of things. And so they had these sort of portable probes with um, like a spade end to it. So you could actually, you know, run five or six different probes and just leave the spade ends available and then plug it into the unit and get the, you know, get the read on the temperatures. Mm-hmm. So the, so they they were a little bit you know working those were a little bit different than you know the you know like the regular min max you know right. thermometers although they work fine. And now were those probes like the the standard probes that we use today kind of or where they had like an adhesive panel that you would stick it to it almost like those uh those stick on you know pads that they put on you at the hospital. Yeah, actually the um, thermocouples actually use basically just a wire, and. Um, you know, and it's not like um, it's a it's a firm wire where you can actually, you know, create angles and things with it. Um, and it has like a very tiny little bare metal end to it. Very cool. And he would he would stick them basically in between the coils, the female right on to the surface of the eggs. He was getting, you know, egg surface temperatures and. Have you seen those papers, Justin? Uh, I don't believe I have. You should probably look it up. I mean, you're familiar with Buddy Bashemi's website, correct? Yeah. GTP Keeper. Yeah. Because um, I basically, um, you know, PDF one summer, um, almost every Condor resource I had, including, you know, magazine articles plus some you know, published and unpublished uh, papers that Trooper had given me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all on his site underneath, I, I don't know, uh, publications or yeah, resources. Yeah, he's got like a whole page. I may have looked at him at one point, but it's probably been a while. Yeah, but if you look at the one, um, there's, it's a, um, I think it's an unpublished paper Trooper had given me, but it was specifically on the um, maternal incubation temperatures that he, you know, um, monitored. Um mm-hmm for several times, uh, several different clutches at National Zoo. That's a good read. And had he, did he do it with other species, too, and sort of compare? I didn't, no. Um, you know, I just did the two with the, with the, um, with the, with the green trees. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating process. You know, they, um, you know, the trooper thought that, they use at times when you peer in on the female, she'll actually have her head buried in the top of the coil 
facing down into the egg, you know, uh, mass. Mm-hmm. And Trooper was pretty convinced that they were using their heat sensor pits to monitor egg mass temperatures. And I know one of his sort of dream uh, research projects, which he never did, and I'm not sure how you would actually do it. I think that was probably part of the issue was numbing those right. heat sensory organs to see if it, if that's you what know, they're actually doing, um, affected, yeah, affected their uh, incubation mm-hmm. um, monitoring. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's one thing that I've. I mean, since the beginning with chondros, I've been super interested to try and just the whole like, I'm a firm believer that that the females know what they're doing better than an incubator or we do. But it's also one of those things where I mean, everyone's kind of. I'll I'll save everyone's. A lot of people seem to be scared to do it. Um, hundred percent. Well, there's more reproductive, you know, there's more reproductive stress on the female because it's an additional, you know, 50 some days that Mm -hmm. she's not, um, um, eating, um, and really not drinking much. I mean, I think I observed a female poking her head out. Like I kept a very, very tiny little ceramic bowl right above the top hole to the, um, uh, nest box. And I think she may have come out for water maybe once. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 you know, it's hard on them. Yeah. Although, but, you know, <laughs> at the same time, I like, I mean, they've been doing it for millions of years. So no, that's I, kind I, of... I agree. I agree. Um, but you know, a lot of, you know, I, people would argue though, that, you know, if you pull them off the eggs, then you can, you know, get them back up to weight and breed them the very next year where that's, you know, probably not, you know, not recommended to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maternally, although I did. <laughs> that was that was sort of the other part of that article that I thought was fascinating. And I, you know, I didn't even realize some of these things because I haven't done that type of breeding in such a long time. You know, when I started sending you that information, I started looking it over and I was even laughing a little bit with Scott Stahl the other day when I saw him uh, for some other things about how you know, ignorance sometimes is probably not a bad thing at times. Yeah. You yeah. know, because, I mean, that female had six litters. Four of them were maternal, and the maternal ones were back-to-back, and then a year off, then back-to-back maternal again. I mean, that's, wow. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, it, makes you, it makes you wonder how many people in the past, you know, happened to have these, whether they were – you know, serious hobbyists or they were, you know, community people or industry people, whatever. It makes you wonder if they ever had, you know, a mom lay a clutch and they were just like, ah, she's wrapped around yeah, them. Leave them in there, it. see what happens. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. to them, they didn't think anything of it. You know, oh, hey, I got babies. Hey, who wants a baby? You know? Uh, and I, I imagine that that had to have happened at some point. Yeah. But there's always the possibility that the female won't, um, stay on the eggs. I know I had a couple of cases where um, when I was um, living with my nephew, so I was at the barn, um, I had a, an Aru female I was going to let maternally incubate, and she laid, you know, half the litter outside the box, half the litter was in the box, and at that point I just, you know, decided to pull her off and artificially incubate the whole thing. And yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask if. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I can't see anyone in their right mind would ever do this, but I wonder if anyone's actually had a, a female that, for lack of a better word, abandoned her clutch, 
And they were like, you know what? Let me leave it in there for a day or so and see if she goes back to it. And they actually do go back. Yeah, that's. It's like, I, I've always wondered if it was like a temperature thing, like, oh man, I'm making these eggs too hot. Let me get off them for, you know, a day. And then like, using those heat pits or whatever, they just know it. You know what? Hey, it might be getting too cold. I should probably go back on those eggs. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure I had conversations with Trooper with the, about these types of things back then. I just can't remember any details about it. Um, but I do know that the most likely time for them to get off the eggs would be as they're laying them or right in that time period. Um, to the best of my knowledge, once they kind of lock in and they wrap, you know, they form up the clutch mm-hmm. and they start incubating it, then as far as I can remember, I, I don't think I ever heard of females then abandoning, you know, their, their, their clutch. Once they actually commit. Yeah. I was going to say, since we're on the topic, have you ever noticed uh, defensive behavior from a mother specifically when she's all, you know, coiled up and everything like is, cause I see people for lack of a better word, you know, raiding nests or raiding their clutch for, to put the eggs in the incubator. And a lot of times mom's just, you know, oh, all right, take them, whatever. And maybe she may be a little defensive, but I didn't know if anyone had ever taken the time to focus on. Cause like, I imagine the wild, she probably has to fight off, you know, egg raiders and predators yeah. all the time, you know? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to the two times I did it with the blue female, and she definitely did not, you know, wasn't crazy about it, um, you know, or, you know, the, the four times, actually, you know, both times we bred her back to Mr. Blue, we did uh, maternal incubation as well. Um, she was she was definitely defensive um, because there were times when, you know, I would just, you know, take like a small, like a sexing probe and just kind of poke in between the coils just to see the eggs. Um, there was once I remember, I want to say it was the second litter that she had where a couple of eggs went bad fairly early on. And I got kind of nervous about that because A, I didn't know how that would affect the other, you know, the other eggs and B, whether the rotting eggs, which were near the surface of the, of the clutch, um, would then um, affect the you know the skin of the female, yeah. um, and didn't seem to bother either one. Very interesting. You know, once the eggs apparently get to be a couple of weeks old, you know they sort of develop their own immunity. So even neighboring eggs, I mean, I did, you know those two eggs were pretty rotten by the end. I mean, at that point you just got to ride it out. Um, but she was fine, and the rest of the clutch was fine. In fact, the neighboring eggs, you couldn't even tell there was anything next to them. That was rotting away. Have you ever known anyone or yourself to use, like, an antifungal, almost like, you know, chlorhex or something, and, like, wipe off any kind of mold or anything, or no? Lotrimin. I, I think that's been <laughs> tried before. The fact it's enacting. <laughs> yeah. I think it's been tried before, but I also think that once it grows, it, it it's probably indicates something's wrong with the egg itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and, and probably they're not going to do well at that point. See, and that's something I've been curious about, and really want to want to sort of investigate more is having uh, like springtails and some isopods in an egg box, and seeing mm-hmm. how that compares to to egg boxes that don't have those, 
Because I feel like those do a pretty good job of sort of cleaning up anything that might take over, you know, getting it before it gets out of control. Yeah, there's always macroscopic organisms in the wild, so why wouldn't it be okay to put, you know? Yeah, although it seemed to me that, you know, the clutch, the female, the egg box and everything, I mean, except for the one instance where I had a few, you know, eggs that went bad early. I mean, it was a very, it stayed relatively, I mean, not sterile, but, you know, it, 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 there were no no issues at all. I've heard that, though, with other species, like some carpets and stuff, that there's eggs that go bad, you know, whether they're at the top of the, the clutch or the bottom, and for whatever reason, they don't seem to affect the other eggs at all. Yeah. It's very interesting. I don't... And you're referring to with when this is MI or even in the incubator? During MI. Okay, I was going to say, because yeah. incubator, that's like a chain reaction, man. And I don't know, that, maybe that's part of why the whole thing is so fascinating to me, is that there's there's just a lot we don't know as far as well, the again, actual know, mechanics um, of it and like what's actually happening. And Yeah, I mean, I've been told, you know, that, you know, the eggs, you know, the good eggs, you know, will develop an immunity, um, whereas, you know, if there are neighboring touching eggs that are going bad the good eggs won't be affected. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely what I observed in that one, uh, with that one letter. Now comparing those, so the, the clutches you did maternal with, and then the clutches you did artificial with, did you notice any major difference as far as the like hatch rate and the, the size of the babies? Uh, were they easier to get, get eating compared to the artificial? Any major differences there? No, um, typically it seemed like, you know, clutch, you know, like the, you either ended up with, um, you know, a lot of eggs that were on the smaller side, babies on the smaller side, mm-hmm. or, you know, fewer eggs that were bigger. You know, there, there's um, this thing they refer to as relative clutch mass, which is basically the mass of the entire clutch of eggs relative to the mass of the female uh-huh. and what um has been found i know um trooper mentioned it many times i think i've seen it um with other species as well is that by and large you you end up within a certain species or given species you end up with a a relative clutch mass in a certain range and it either divides up as like i said before either a lot of eggs that are smaller or fewer eggs that are bigger, but the mass overall is roughly the same. Super cool. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I didn't, you know, like with the blue female, she had really large litters. Um, you know, her first litter with, um, you know, Mr. Blue and it was uh, 24 eggs. I mean, you have the, the, the data there, but... I think it was about 24 eggs. I had 17 hatched. Um, and how big know. was mom? Uh, she was pretty big. I never weighed her. I didn't have a scale back then either. Um, what was also remarkable about her too is that, and again, this is something I've, I have not heard of since really. Uh, maybe you guys might have heard of it um, only because I, I'm not as um, – tuned into the condor world as I once was, but 
you know, she she had her first litter of two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. You know. And she was the same size that she was still that large size of two years. She was big. I mean, I got, but see, I got her in a trade with Trooper after. So when I picked up, when he gave me that runt mail in 92, we wound up buying another Condro from him. That was actually a litter mate. Um, and then about a year and a half later, um, you know, I, talk to him about you know if, to see if he'd be open to trade one of them you know back for you know different bloodline because i didn't want to you know breed siblings and um he didn't want the run which was funny but he did take you know the female mm-hmm. and um i don't you know and this is another part of a whole nother story but that bloodline apparently was a very low percentage, but possible had albinos. It turned out. Um, wow. Yeah. So, um, and that was nothing I really even knew about until way later on down the line. Yeah, hindsight, right? Well, and then I don't think there's anything that you know I, I would have had that could have, um, you know, given me a shot at getting you know an albino. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but what was interesting was, so I traded that female back to Trooper. For the female eventually got, you know, the, the blue female mm-hmm. who was, you know, a sibling or a litter mate to other very well-known blue line chondro females, you know, Joan Collins being one and Powder were also, you know, sisters of the blue female I got. Um, but the female traded back to Trooper, which was a sibling to, you know, the legend male. It's, she actually produced once for Trooper um, an animal that he swore at the time looked like an albino. It, it died shortly after hatching. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, he was thinking this just can't be. And then later on down the line, can't remember who it was. I think it might've been Marshall Mendez figured out that, that bloodline, the computer chondro bloodline, which is, you know, the legend male was, yep a sibling to the you know computer or calico male of you know greg maxwell eventually picked up from trooper and um somewhere somebody figured out that the albino gene was floating around in there somewhere um so that was kind of an interesting part of the story um but did you ever see that baby or no say again did you ever see that baby or no no i never did um but yeah back to you know, the, the original part of the story for this was, you know, I, I acquired that blue female. She was already about a year and a half old and already eating small rats. Trooper was a pretty heavy. Wow. Feeder. Good God. Wow. No, Trooper was a heavy feeder. Which was interesting. There was some interesting sort of arguments I remember between, you know, he and Rico because, um, you know, Trooper was kind of an old school feeder. You know, mm-hmm. um, he bumped he bumped his chondros up to rat pups and then small rats as soon as possible. Um, Rico, I don't know if you remember, but he was a very ardent mouse feeder. In fact, published an article about the was the phosphorus calcium ratio in a mouse is much better than you know the same size rat that kind of thing and yeah you know kind of you know kind of uh, pitching the uh, 
theory that, you know, mice are in fact better food for, you know, um, large voids than, than, you know, equivalent mass rats. Um, so they had some interesting conversations, you know, back in the day. Did but you, yeah, so did you have a preference as far as the two? Well, you know, I kept feeding what whatever trooper, mm-hmm. you know, started her out on. So, you know, by the time I bred her at two and a half years old, she was eating medium rats. I mean, I'm talking legitimate wow. medium rats. I, just, I can't even wow. fathom that. Like, I look at my snakes that are two and a half years old, and I mean, they're they're on like adult mice, maybe. Well, exactly. I mean, and everything <laughs> pretty much I ever produced was on that sort of growth as well. So I, I don't really know what Trooper did to, you know, to 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 get that out of them. And it might have been partly a um, manifestation of the bloodline itself. But, um, you know, but she she was, you know, she was big. Mm-hmm. Just rolling them in protein powder. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Steroids. <laughs> Just making, just only feeding the rats muzzle milk. That's it. Yep. But again, something, you know, I don't really take credit for because like I said, I mean, she was already well, very well started and um, a, a pretty significant size at a year and a half when I picked her up. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like you think about that and then you think about like Gary Schiavino posted a video a couple months ago of one of his females that laid a very small clutch and it was a tiny female. Like looking at that, I was like, "There's no way you you got eggs out of that." But he did. Right. I mean, they, that was it was amazing. I mean, I've heard of of small females breeding, but until you sort of see like a you know in context of like him holding it on the perch, you don't really realize like, man, that thing was really small. Yeah. Yeah, but she had some massive litters. I mean, her her last few litters with daddy pants were just enormous. I mean, the one litter that Buddy did the first time, she had something like 36 eggs. Wow. You know, wow. I mean, we only got, um, I can't remember what we hatched out of that, maybe 24. And that was done artificially because Buddy had a um, a form of incubator. Mm-hmm. It was still 24. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. See, that was a up to that point. That was, I mean, that one litter probably was, in my view, um, even better than, you know, the one that I did with, you know, that produced Mr. Blue. I mean, the the number of crazy looking animals, including the animal called Crazy, came out of that daddy pants blue female, Mm -hmm. you know, litter. So, very cool. I wish we had better luck the second time around, but we didn't. That is the, I will say, like, I was very surprised with my first clutch, just how small the eggs are compared to other Morelia. Yeah. Like, compared to Jake's Popwins that he hatched out. I mean, he got eight eggs. I got twice that, but they were also half the size. Yeah. Yeah, but Jake's but Jake's Popwins are gigantic No, Popwins. this was one of the smaller females, though. Okay. This wasn't, got, when, this wasn't one of the big ones. Because when I got to see his some of his breeder females... I, I they they're coastal size man. They're diesel animals. They're big. So, yeah, especially that one yeah. from Brahms. It's huge. Yeah, dude, that one from Brahms is an anomaly. It's a legitimate bulldog. I received that snake for him. Like it got shipped to work, and so I opened it up to see the bag. Like I got the box. The box came in from FedEx. I was like, "There's a freaking pop one in here." It was huge. It was a massive box. I was like, "What the hell?" And I opened it up and I looked. I was like, oh, "Okay, that makes sense. That's a big pop one." <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ. It's massive. <clears throat> 
but some localities seem to have bigger eggs too. Like I, I, I tended to think like the Aru populations mm-hmm. um, seem to have larger, smaller clutches, larger eggs. Yeah. And larger, you know, larger babies too. I mean, I, I think I remember, you know, with the blue female, her babies ranged. I mean, I want to say anywhere between like eight to 11 grams. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, I that's pretty some... big. Mine were averaging, yeah. I think f- between four and six, maybe oh, wow. eight. Yeah. I mean, they were, some of them were pretty small. There was a few that were, that were definitely bigger than the others, but. I weighed them all. And they, they fully absorbed the yolk and everything? And they were that small still? Yeah, there was one in particular. What? It's actually the one holdback I have that I kept from that first clutch. He was the smallest one out of all of them, or it. I don't know if it's a male or female, but I still have that snake, and it's, I mean, it's perfect. I mean, it just, you wouldn't have known. Well, I sometimes found that the uh, smaller babies started better than some of the fatter, you know, mm-hmm. babies. What was the uh, the pairing that Trooper did that produced that original runt runt male? Uh, that's a good question. I'd have to look that one up. That was the one that the computer chondro came out of. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that um, you know that litter. Um, I'll pull it up in here in a second. That litter, unfortunately, and and this is kind of an unfortunate thing. I still stay in touch with Trooper's health is really bad, but. There's, you know, many animals in those bloodlines, you know, in the earlier years that I'm sure he has pictures of and we may never see because we can't ever pin him down to go through all of his, you know, stuff. Yeah. Um, which would be a shame because there's several, I can't tell you how many requests I've had over the years for some uh, pictures of... Um, some of the animals that came from uh, specifically that male side. Um, where is he in here? I'm just curious because it's something we've seen kind of repeatedly is that you pair two sort of non-assuming chondros that are just sort of green snakes, but for whatever reason you put them together and you produce sort of oddballs like that. And then you have people who are putting together you know, crazy combinations yeah, no, this and kind one, of getting I mean, standard. You know, Trooper definitely had a method to his madness. Um, you know, this bloodline was um, two Tom Roberts animals. Um, um, one of them was produced by Al Zulich from his sort of famous blue inbreeding mm-hmm. that yeah. he did. Um, so half of the line came from that. The other half came from um, Van Myrop, which was uh, uh, he was a research professor that um, was from University of Florida that um, Trooper and Eugene kind of befriended back in the day. Hmm. Um, and then some of them came from uh, some of the original founders um, in that Calico line were also from uh, two of Trooper's original uh, founders from back in 76. Yeah, it's nuts, man. Yeah, but I've not seen pictures. I I don't have any pictures of either one of the parents there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's one of the things about conjures that I do like a lot. Is I mean, you it's it's I feel in other corners of the hobby, 
I don't feel like you see people holding on to lineage and documenting lineage as much as Chondro guys do. Not at all, man. I, I always compare the Chondro folks to the racehorse people because, you know, the lineage is, is so crucial to their, to their hobby, mm-hmm. you know, to their passion to it, you know? Well, I think a lot of that is in large part because, you know, Trooper, you know, and Eugene and some of the early guys, you know, Switek and such, um, they were all zoo-based people. And so, um, you know, there's um, there was a humongous, um, and I think I got a copy of it somewhere, a humongous stud book um, with chondros um, that was circulating among you know, some zoos. And so I think a lot of that documentation was part of, you know, sort of what they do mm-hmm. in the zoo field with, you know, other animals they acquire and maintaining, you know, uh, stud book records. Yeah. I mean, I, I did that with the animal I have from Brahms where, you know, I, I the, the grandparents to the, the one I have, I did a lot of digging and found sort of the, the animals that produced those. And like, I went, I dug back as far as I could on that tree. And it was actually really fun to kind of try and hunt these things down and, and find them. And it's, I think it, when it comes down, especially it's like that kind of stuff is really important when you're dealing with bloodlines that come from, you know, Rico and, and guys that just aren't around anymore because there's only so much of that blood left, you know, you want to try and preserve it. But at the same time, you, you know, you kind of want to outcross a little bit. So you're not just constantly inbreeding everything. Right. I think it's also a pride thing too. Like, like I go back to those racehorse people. So like people are prideful to say like, Oh, it, my bloodline hails from this, or we're hoping to do something with that. And also I noticed too, is with the exception of a handful of other Morelia guys, I think Chondro guys, they're, they name their animals. First of all, they, they name their animals, great names, which is awesome. But like, I find it that they're more apt to, Keep the name going. The name is known. It's yeah. part of the lineage. It's part of the pride of it. You know, yeah. the, the name is a big deal. And it's it's odd because if you did that with like corn snakes, people would be like, "What's that?" Yeah, and like I think <laughs> of like some of our friends that do like pitiopus and stuff, and it's like, "Oh, who who are you breeding this season?" Oh, I'm gonna put this one red male to this one red female, and then you ask the chondro guys, it's like, "No, Lucky Strike number one." is being bred to Sally Greenfields. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> which is which is fun, you know? And again, it, I think it just goes back to that that racehorse, you know, that thoroughbred lineage pride stuff, which is awesome. Yeah, and again, I think, you know, a lot of that stems back to, you know, Trooper and Eugene. Well, probably more Trooper than Eugene. I don't, I, I don't recall too many names of animals coming from and the trooper was pretty, um, you know, pretty uh, um, into naming his animals. Like mm-hmm. he named Powder, Old Yeller, um, you know, Carolina, Forest. Yeah, and it's just, it's nuts because you, like, you say those names and I, like, immediately know which animals you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, like, you don't see that anywhere else. I mean, maybe with some of the, like, the, the emeralds, like some of the emerald guys. There's some sort of hallmark animals that that stand out, you know. But you don't see that in ball pythons. You don't see that in in cresteds. You don't see that in uh, you know 
many other, if any, other realms. Yeah, you know, I mean, shy of, shy of, like I said, a couple like carpet guys, maybe some scrub guys. You know, like the NPR boys. You know, some of their major heavy hitter breeders. Those names are becoming more prevalent because people are, you know, they they desire that that one specific snake's offspring and stuff. But mm-hmm. the chondro guys, they win in that field. You know, it's awesome. If you were currently breeding, would you still do maternal? Yeah, I would definitely do it again. I mean, that that would be something I would probably be most interested in doing. I mean, I just found it to be, for me, uh, a very, it, it was a very cool experience just watching it happen from start to finish. And did you ever have any females that had any issues while they were doing it? No, the only one I that really let roll through the entire maternal process was the, um, you know, was the blue female. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, she didn't. You know, she was a good mom. And speaking of like lines and stuff too. I was talking to someone the other day. They were talking about lemon tree stuff. I don't remember who I was talking to, but they were, uh, there was this, they, they were saying it doesn't, like you don't see it around anymore because there was issues, I guess, with babies just not making it. Like there was some, do you know anything about that? Like why that line kind of disappeared and sort of fizzled out? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, there were a couple of different supply lines to that so-called lemon tree. As far as I remember, um, one of the um, original ones was an animal actually um, Sean, my nephew and I saw in a uh, Virginia pet store um, as a baby and they wanted like, I don't know, a thousand dollars for it. And that was just, that was high, you know, even back then. Mm-hmm. Um and so we went back, like, I don't know, a year or two later, um, probably maybe a year, year and a half later, and it was still yellow. Like, it was baby yellow the first time. Right. Second time, it was transitioned yellow. You know, the, the baby markings were gone. It was still lemon yellow. So Sean wound up buying that. And then later, um, it went to uh, Tony Nikolai, who got into doing some condo stuff for a while. And then there was Gary Sipperly who had some lemon trees. Um, he was out West, but I don't, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, you're right. I don't remember what happened with that. And then of course, years later you had the, um, the canaries, you know, that yeah. you can never pronounce the name of the Island they Kofi come Al. from, but, Kofi yeah. Al, yeah. but you don't see a lot of those anymore either. Well, it's funny because Matt Morris sent an article about those and that that all chondro issue of the magazine, and basically, like a very large percentage of those that that are yellow, that are those sort of quote unquote canaries, don't stay yellow. Yeah, like they actually seem to go through several shifts where they'll go from yellow to green to kind of like a a weird wash in between, and then they go back to green. And he said the percentage that actually stay yellow is very small. Yeah, well, they do change a lot throughout their life, and I, I don't know if you remember 
Um, this was a little while ago where I posted several pictures of um, a sibling to old Yeller that's still alive down at National Zoo. And I think I, I posted a picture of that animal uh, from a picture I shot back in, oh, 92, 93, somewhere in that ballpark, maybe 94. Mm-hmm. And then a couple more recent shots. And you couldn't, you wouldn't even know that they're the same animal. I mean, they're just that much different. Yeah. So. It's actually interesting you brought that up because I was just talking to this week a friend of mine locally who had some Kofi out from like 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, he had two pairs and one pair just, they just did not like each other. They wouldn't breed, wouldn't do nothing. And then he had another pair where they locked up. He wound up never getting eggs, but during the you know hormonal cycle, the female turned green and then never went back yellow. Mm. Yeah, it's odd, man. Super odd. Yeah, and I knew a few people that had, you know, some of the earlier ones, and even after they went all yellow, basically, you know, getting rid of their baby yellow and their baby, you know, markings, uh, they were basically lemon yellow animals just all of a sudden one day turned green mm-hmm. you know could and a couple of years later a guy named danny brought up uh had a, had a, at least one if not two animals that did that and did they shed green or they just literally woke up one day boom green if i remember correctly um just went green crazy hmm. i mean it happened like within a matter of days like the transition was very quick. Interesting. It makes you wonder if they're some kind of like, not to sound unscientific, but if they're just like late bloomers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, I remember Sean and I hypothesized on the one female or yeah, the one yellow female we got from that pet store was, we just thought that it was an undersized animal for its age. And probably as a result, you know, the, the transitional color change was also delayed, but that animal remained yellow as far as I can remember, even up until the day it died, had kind of like a, you know, like a, a greenish head. Hmm. And also re- Reminds me of those guys that could just, they just never could grow a beard. And then finally <laughs> on like their 40th, on their 40th birthday, they grow a beard and on their on the, the next day it goes gray. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that's hilarious. But the uh, I mean as far as the lemon tree stuff goes, from what I understand, it was explained to me that the line had become so inbred that now like people were having issues with the neonates uh you know, either eggs just not hatching or neonates just doing really bad after after coming out. So I don't know. I wasn't sure if you would you'd be clued into that at all. Cause I, I honestly don't know enough about the line to, to be able to say one way or the other. Um, I just know it doesn't seem to be nearly as, as prevalent in collections as it used to be. And see, I just assumed that that was the case because guys had started to diversify the gene pool and the stark lemon snakes weren't necessarily coming out. I mean, that's also possible, but a lot, I do think a lot of these designer lines are pretty, pretty folded back over themselves a lot sure I and i like mean I'm, I'm nowhere i'm nowhere near in the conjurer world as you gentlemen but like even my my observations of just there's there has not been a 
there has not been a lot of yellow chondros adults in the past couple of years. It's just not there. Yeah. I think mostly what a lot of people are kind of now focused on, at least within the last couple of years, has been the you know the Oshi stuff, the the Eugene high yellow lines. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a, a case of people shifting focus and stuff, but who knows? I think Forest yeah. Forest had some elementary stuff. Or probably I think mm-hmm. Des and them still do. I'm not sure. I know they did at one point. I keep yeah. seeing more and more, like, I don't know the correct terminology, but like those kaleidoscope-looking Deox. I keep seeing more and more of that. I feel like that's, I feel like that might be the new Kofi Al, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it depends. I mean, there's people that sell high yellow Beox, but, I mean, that's been a debate on, on a lot of the chondro groups is, like, just because it's labeled as a high yellow Beox or a high yellow animal doesn't mean it's a high yellow line animal. Right, right. Like, there is a like distinction. The, yeah, the, the canaries of 2005, 2006, that's kind of gone away, so to say. And I feel like that those kaleidoscope crazy, you know, all the reds and blacks and greens and blues and, you know, the pixelation yeah. is what's trending now, you know? Yeah, the calico stuff, you know, the stuff that, like, John Irby's popping out and um, Dave D and, and all those guys. So, I don't know. It's, I mean, conjures aren't, aren't, uh, free from the the trendiness of things you know that goes with the hobby i feel like it's a little it's a little more uh concentrated and like focused on but it's all about the people working on that stuff oh yeah definitely way more attention to detail than most other species that people work with well but how did your nephews get into chondros is it because of you um we probably got into it about the same time you know, it kind of went along the lines of the story that was in the article where, mm-hmm. you know, I got a hold of that, you know, the, the reproductive husband, husbandry book. And within those pit pages were several pictures, um, you know, that were credited, you know, to Trooper at the National Zoo. And so I basically told Sean, I'm like, look, we got to go down there, <laughs> you know, because it's only 30 minutes, you know, or so from where we live. Um and actually, at that point in time, we were uh, both, um, again, through a connection I made, uh, working or volunteering, rather, uh, with Pete Call. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was there at Pete's. I witnessed the birth of the first albino boas, which was pretty fun. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, I, I've, got, I've been in the right place at the right time a couple times. <laughs> That is an out. understatement. Yeah. No, yeah, that, that, that was that was fun. That was. I kind of laughed when they were like, "Oh yeah, the guys at the barn." Like that's that's Tim's nephews, and I was like, "Oh, that kind of makes sense." Because I mean, they, the barn has produced some of the most incredible chondros of all time. Uh, oh, absolutely. I know, mean, it's... you know, um, yeah. So Sean and I both, you know, have been into snakes for a long time. And then I just met, by chance, uh, Pete Call because I went to a pet shop to buy a rainbow boa that they said they could get. And several weeks went by and they didn't get it in yet. So finally the guy calls and he's calling Pete. I didn't know who he was. And um, and uh, Pete said he was going to be bringing it down to the pet shop in another week or so. 
So when a guy got off the phone, he said, well, he's going to be driving it down. I'm like, well, if he's going to drive it down, I'll just drive up and get it. And, it, and he didn't really want me to go drive and get it because of course <laughs> he was getting it wholesale and right. selling it to me for retail. And I told him, you know, I don't give a shit, you know, I'll pay, you know, the 400 bucks for it. I don't care. I just want to get the snake. So he called Pete back and Pete said, Hey, you know, or asked Pete, you know, do you mind if this guy comes up and gets it? So, so I drove up there, um, to go get it. And, you know, um, and in the process of doing so go down to this basement where all these snakes are. And I just thought I died and went to heaven. And I remember going as soon as I left Pete's, you know, with the snake, I went to a, um, you know, pay phone because there was, you know, didn't have cell phones back then. And I called Sean and I'm like, dude, you got to come up here and see this place. It's like freaking crazy, man. This guy's got like 200, 300 snakes in his basement. It's awesome. So, um, you know, so from that point on, we um, talked him into letting us volunteer there during the uh, summer, you know, breaks when we were when we weren't in school. So. And did that make you want boas? Like, yeah, it did. Like well, actually, at the time, the hot thing back then was um, or the hot, affordable thing back then were the albino Burmese. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that time, they were like 250 apiece because the albino boas at that point, he was just, you know, he had bred um, the male boa. He had acquired that male boa from some guys in California who couldn't get it to breed. And he bought it for like 25 grand. Um, and so he bred it to a bunch of normals, created a bunch of hets. And then in 92, um, bred, you know, some of the hets were big enough. So he bred them back to, you know, the male and produced, you know, the first albinos. But they were also, you know, he wasn't selling any of the original albinos initially. Um, and the hets were, you know, prohibitively expensive as well. So. But I was happy to see that, and I think I, I wasn't there when he hatched out the first piebald. You know, he 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 hatched out the first piebald ball python as well, um, in captivity. But I was, you know, I saw the babies very early on. That's crazy. I can't imagine like, you know, walking in, opening the incubator, <laughs> looking at and it, seeing that, seeing that yeah. for the first time. Like that's just crazy. Well, it's crazy, too, when you think about it, because back then, nobody had bred these things in captivity. Nobody even knew if it was genetic, you know, like a simple recessive genetic um, uh, mutation. And here Pete was spending 25, 30 grand buying up every, you know, piebald that came in. Mm -hmm. You know, there was this guy, there was a guy in um, Africa, his name was Noah, um, who was the big exporter back then. And he was shipping over, you know, loads of ball pythons. And so there were some people who would connect with these shipments and basically handpick, you know, ones out of there. So, of course, then they were starting to look for these, you know, piebalds and such. Um, but I remember him spending quite a bit of money not even knowing if it was, you know, going to be a simple recessive or more complex gene. Yeah, it's the thing that that blows my mind with it is just the fact that those genes have been f- floating around in those populations for God knows how long. Yeah, yeah. You know, like they've like. Well, it's just like the whole you know the palmetto corn story, you know. Yeah, I mean that's crazy. 
And then the fact that that a single animal can completely change the course of a you know a species in the hobby, right? It's right, mind blowing. And too. that's one cool thing about you know, and that's really one cool thing about condros is that you don't really, you don't really have that, you know, um, you know. There for a while, I mean, a lot of people wanted, you know, blue snakes, but then you end up with these really wicked looking like tricolors and quad color, mm-hmm. you know, condros and things like that too. And then of course you had the lemon trees and you know, the canaries and, um, and then, um, you know, in the mid two thousands, a big one was the, um, you know, the so-called Marukis, you know, trying to get the, you know, a green animal with as much of a white stripe as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a hot commodity, you know, there for a while, but, um, but yeah, you don't really see that too much in the, you know, in the condors, it's pretty diverse. I think it also goes back to, People like the conjurer thing too, because you have no idea what you're going to get until it's old enough. Yeah, I when think. you're doing those mutts, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, every once, every once. That's a, like our friend group. Everyone in our friend group has conjures, honestly, except for me. And I, it's only a matter of time before I get the right one. But that's the one thing that we always talk about is how every single day, you know, we're sharing pictures of conjures because they just they just evolve in front of you, you know. Mm-hmm. And you'll never know what you're going to get. It's awesome. Well, that's yeah. yeah. And those and those mutt lines are really, you know, that that's 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 a big part of their lure. You know, in any given litter, you pair if you have one of these multi generational, you know, mutts. I mean, who knows what you're going to get? Did you ever branch out with the blue stuff and pair it to like outcross it to other stuff? Yeah, we did try. Um, in fact, I tried, um, and, and I kind of wish I would have kept going with it. Although there was probably some things that crept in, in the in the middle of it. But anyways, one of the things that I always wanted to do, and actually did do a little bit of, but like I said, just didn't continue it, um, was to produce a blue-bellied blue snake. You know, like if you know, like the arus. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of the arus have a lot of blue on the on the ventral scales. Mm-hmm. You know, not not completely, but you know, varying amounts. And some, you know, mainly on the distal end of the animal, but still very you know very noticeable and a very distinctive characteristic. And all the blue line animals up to that point were all, you know, basically, you know, varying amounts of blue, green, black, but with pearl white bellies. So I always thought, wow, what if you could incorporate or infuse, you know, that aru blue belly sort of look with with the animals and actually did pair a really nice um there was actually a really nice high white, um, fairly well developed blue belly. Uh it was a wild caught female aru that I picked up in Daytona. Uh paired that one to, you know, the legend male and actually did produce a couple of animals that were I would, they weren't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have called them super blues, but they were definitely bluer than mm-hmm. they were green, and they definitely had some of that aru blue on the belly. But I. But the one I had that I really liked. In fact, I nicknamed them. In fact, it was twenty. What was it? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven oh six. So it was the twenty-seventh animal of two thousand six. I think it was or two thousand four. I can't remember. But anyway, the, the legend male was 2793 or 2792. So, um, um, 
so that was kind of that was kind of cool that they were both sort of you know the 27th animal that year for the people that bred them mm-hmm. and I th- and that one died on me i think at, at, when it was probably four or five years old not i can't remember what happened to it um back now i think it was 08 it was 08 because was, i was at the barn so it was 2008 2708 I and can't remember what happened to it, but it, it, it. Whatever happened to the clutch mates to that? Are they out there floating around still? Uh, they could be. Um, you know, I, yeah, I don't remember much. You know about what what happened to some of the other you know, animals out of that litter. Mm-hmm. We produced a lot of animals that year. That was a that was a crazy ass year um, between Sean and I, which Sean was he became a doctor, so at that point. Christian um, kind of took over the animals for him. Um, I mean, we produced several hundred animals that year, which was crazy. Wow. I mean, That's you nice. know, yeah. I mean, in mine weren't all condors; they were some other things that I produced. But still, I was inundated with animals. Um, so that was a pretty crazy year. So yeah, I don't remember. And then after that, I moved out, bought a place, and then. I know, you know, several animals went several different locations, but I don't remember mm-hmm. to whom or where. Probably got it written down somewhere. I don't even know if those people are still in it. Did you ever do MI with any other python species? No, I was going to do some. I worked with um, some spotted pythons back then. I was going to try with them, and I don't, I don't think that I did. Mm-hmm. But I remember... Those that would have been the only other python species. That's something that would be really cool to see, like a little ant hill curled up around. Well, a there's tiny, several tiny people clutch. have done it. I think you, I think Justin Julander's done several maternal oh, incubations sure with them. Yeah, some Antaricea species. Mm-hmm. And when when the chondro eggs started hatching, did you let them all sort of come out on their own, or did you end up pulling them when they started pipping? Yeah, so that's a good question too. So what's interesting is when the clutch starts getting near the the hatch date, you'll notice the female will start loosening up her coils quite a bit, and you'll see more space in between the coils. Mm-hmm. And what's really remarkable is once the babies start to hatch, you'll see the female completely move coils out of the way just, just to accommodate, you know, the the poking heads, you know. Which is interesting when you think about it because, you know, when you do, you know, artificial incubation, if you just so much even to open the incubator door, you know, all the heads go right back in yeah. the eggs, you know. Um, but it seems like the babies are a little more, I wouldn't say hesitant, but they just didn't exhibit that same mm-hmm. reaction, you know, to the female. So, you know, that was pretty cool. I think I waited until I saw several babies. Um, and I think didn't I send you some pictures of ones that were in the later stage? Yeah, where they were actually almost I, some I babies so. almost out. Yeah, you know, I think I waited till some babies actually came completely out of the egg before I wound up pulling her off. Hmm. And part of that was because I was just, you know, it was my first, you know, it was my first litter with them. I mean, that, that, you know, you got to keep in mind this was. My, that, that litter that produced Mr. Blue was my very first litter with green trees. It was my only pair of, you know, snakes yeah. or green trees. So, um, 
So when it got to hatch date, you know, I wanted to just kind of see how things would go. I, I'm pretty sure I had some conversations with Trooper at the time to, you know, kind of get some guidance. But I was also afraid that, you know, if I didn't get the female off clean enough, if I wound up screwing up some of the animals, you know, some of the eggs, you know. Um, so I was kind of worried about that. So I just kind of let them come out, you know, which is what they would do in the wild. Right. And that's what Trooper kept saying, you know, they've done this for millions of years. I think they know what they're doing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just kind of let, you know, step back and let it go. Um, you know, I did find, you know, one of the sort of small drawbacks, depending on the kind of litter that your animal makes, is I did find, you know, some of the animals on the very inside of the of the beehive, um, you know, were were dead. Like never came out? Yeah, and I guess either overheated yeah. um, because the you know the clutch was so big, or um, you know, or just you know just not enough space. I mean, you know what I did what I did notice is when the eggs start to hatch, the albumin from the eggs seem to um, almost act as like a separator. You know what I mean? Like you know you've got to pull eggs apart. Yeah. Once once the albumin starts to seep in between those eggs, they tend to come apart very easily. Oh, I didn't know that. It's um, like a it's like a natural solvent. Yeah, it almost seems to That's act in that way because they were, you know, definitely exposing more of the eggs on the inside on their own. You know, I didn't really pull any apart until I took the female off. See, I feel like. But that's another. I... Go ahead. I was just going to say that's another reason why, especially late in the incubation period, you want to make sure you, know, you keep the ambient temperatures, you know, lower. You know, like yeah. I think I said, seventy-eight, eighty degrees, because at that point, you know, the litter is going to be creating a lot of their own heat, and um, you know, those inside eggs are going to be less able to, mm-hmm. you know, dissipate, you know, the the heat. And did Trooper ever find out what? like how warm it gets in the center of, of, of a clutch like that? Yeah, he did. I mean, and I'm sure it's in that article. Um, you know, and again, that's, that's, that's a really good, and it's a fairly short read too, but it's really, it's interesting when you just kind of go back and you read, you know, just kind of how they did things from the ground up. Yeah. You know, both um, Trooper and Eugene will tell you that they, 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 throughout the years, they killed way more chondro babies than they ever produced. You know, and trying to you know figure out how to um, hatch them out. Oh, I can only imagine, especially back then. Yeah. You know, when you're still sort of trying to figure it all out with the artificial. You know, I'm sure they lost right. entire clutches. Yeah, those papers are really you know really good. I would definitely recommend you know taking a minute to spend on um, Buddy's site because, like I said, I. Took me um, several days my summer break to PDF these things, and and I knew he was putting together, you know, like a resource page on his mm-hmm. website. See, I need to do what like Billy Hunt does and just print out like entire. Like Eric Burke does it too, but like print out entire websites basically, because you know, I mean, it, you never know how long they're going to be there. So his big thing yeah, is like well, printing you know, out as pages far as and those saving documents them. are concerned i'll always have them too so yeah. um but i always prefer to read things in hand versus on a screen mm-hmm. 
I'm the same way. Yeah. Same way. Although I understand that the, uh, what do they call them, the paper white Kindles are pretty good as far as that's concerned, as far as looking like natural paper and not bothering your eyes. But, you mm -hmm. know, trying to use an iPad or a computer to read things, it's tough. Oh, my eyes, I usually wind up printing stuff off. It's only as good as its battery. <laughs> right. <laughs> good point. Nope. And you, when you have a hurricane come through and you don't have power for six to ten days and your Kindle dies in the first 24 hours, you really wish you <laughs> had that boring. book. boring. <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> Did you do anything with that female as far as post-hatch, like as far as bringing her back up to, to speed weight-wise and stuff? Did you do anything in particular? No, just pulled her off and fed her. Okay. Like normal size oh, meal yeah. and everything? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, like I said, ignorance back then was probably working in my favor a little bit. How, um, when you pull the female off the eggs, did you completely put her in a, a, a totally separate enclosure? Or, like, for example, I've had a lot of snakes where if mom can smell, you know, where the litter was or, you know, where the clutch was, she's going to be more focused on where her babies are, per se and be reluctant to eat. And I've actually had snakes go a long time without feeding to the point where I had to completely sanitize the enclosure and then the smell was basically gone and they'd start feeding again. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think that I ever went through any of that. I think I definitely pulled her out and, you know, cleaned out, you know, all the sphagnum and all that stuff and returned it to, you know, a normal, you know, uh, a non-incubation substrate, which was either you know, either like a cypress mulch I was using at the time or just newspaper. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I have one of those egg boxes that Eugene used way back when. It's I'm staring at it right now, and I was tempted to use it, but it's the hinges and stuff are kind of rusty. I ain't trying to give my snake tetanus. <laughs> yeah, I just used um, those little rough tote things. I mean, I, I'm sure I just went wherever I could go to, you know, find, you know, something I could use that was big enough. Well, I'd imagine that the, the size of that lay box, too, kind of does matter because if it's a smaller box, those temperatures are going to be a little higher. So was there, do you know now, like, is there is there a size that's better uh, opposed to something smaller rather than larger? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I remember back in the day when Greg Maxwell got, into the condros and bought up a lot of trooper stuff he actually made egg boxes and they were if i remember correctly and if you look at some of the earlier photos of troopers they were elevated and they were um basically just square almost looked like bird you know mm -hmm. bird houses you know um you know mine was just on the floor of the cage and when you say his were elevated they're like uh, uh... On little legs, like a like a stilt house. Well, yeah. You know, so if you go, um, if if you don't, um, I could probably find the picture for you. But um, kind of, he had it. Um, the the one picture I'm thinking about, he had he had it basically attached to a bamboo perch, um, and I don't, I can't remember how. In another case, uh, one of his setups down at the National Zoo. He basically had an elevated shelf, and he had the box on top of that. Okay. 
So I'm looking at this um, article that um, one of the articles that he did, and it was actually for a reptile husbandry and breeding symposium for in 1982. So that was probably one of the first papers uh, Trooper did on um, breeding um, chondros. And mm -hmm. um, he actually references some of the uh, breeders who did maternal with uh, Burmese pythons. Yeah, I just I, I want to try it, man. I really I think this next clutch I'm feeling much more confident about doing it because last the first time I saw the eggs and I was like, yeah, no, these are going to the incubator. Yeah. Well, see, yeah, you I mean, told you them up and then sits on them. I mean, go for it. I mean, I, I think that you know it's a, it's a it's a, it's a great experience. And see, Justin, you told our friend group. You promised Tim that you were going to do one MI this year, so you cannot <laughs> check well, it no. out now. It's because I told him I was going to do it that now I can't back out. Now you cannot back out, brother. It's uh, the first time it was that initial. I mean, it was the first time I bred chondros, and it was yeah, that well, initial. The first, I, I, the first time I bred chondros, I produced Mister Blue, and I did it maternally. Yeah, it was that. It was that initial shock of seeing my female Burn. and how how thin she was that I was like, Jesus Christ, excuses, get the eggs. excuses. But she can handle it. She's she's a big biok, so she can. I mean, I yeah, said that the first time fine. too. She'll be fine. Yeah, just have the incubator set up just in case, you know, and um, and don't be surprised. I've had some a uh, couple of cases um, with the Mister Blue back to the back to mom, where she actually, when she was wrapping the eggs up, she'd actually kicked out a couple of slugs. Mm -hmm. um, so they're actually pretty good about, you know, uh, kicking out things that may may not be good you know for the litter as a whole that's crazy i just i want to know that's how they so do cool. it man i want to know what i mean surely it's a scent thing but it's just like they it just blows my mind that they know exactly what to do like better than, Look, than we can they're probably smarter than us they probably have their own telepathy language and we're just too dumb to realize it yes phil that's exactly it <laughs> Well, they've got it down, you know, and I've always thought, you know, I don't know how you'd ever pull it off, but I, I would definitely be interested to see if, in fact, you know, the heat sensory pits do play a role in their, you know, mm -hmm. monitoring of the, um, of the incubation temperatures, you know, their thermal regulation. I mean, I'd imagine it has see, to have some, it has to have yeah, some sort of factor to it. see the females do a lot of, you know, you're going to see the female do a lot of uh, muscular contractions. Mm-hmm. You know, to kind of, you know, drive up temperatures when needed. You know, what would also be interesting is if we could figure out how many calories they burn either in a day or during the entire incubation. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're, well, looking you can, at, you're looking at animals yeah. that don't burn a lot of calories to begin with. You know, I'm sure it's... Yeah, I guess it would be tough. I mean, you crazy. can... I know Trooper always kind of weighed, you know, like I said, the... Um, you know, especially when they did artificial, they would weigh the mass of the clutch and then weigh the female and then determine what they, you know, call the relative clutch mass. But, yeah, hmm. figuring out that, yeah, because that would be tough because you couldn't really mess with the female prior to her going on the egg. So you yeah. wouldn't, it would be very difficult to get that, um, you know, to get that weight. I mean, you'd almost have to get a weight before she became legitimately gravid 
because otherwise yeah. your numbers are going to be skewed. You know, you're going to have to. I guess you couldn't even subtract the the egg mass from from that initial weighing if she's holding, because those you know those eggs are going to be heavier than they were, you know, prior. Yeah. I don't know. This is just Conjure guys. We overanalyze everything. We yeah, all, well, there we... might be other ways for them to you know to figure out you know caloric expenditure on that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, but. It'd just be an interesting number. We'll probably never know, but yeah. Well, they're pretty. You know, they can be pretty lean coming off the eggs. I know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long period. I mean, when you talk, think about the gestation and the the incubation combined. I mean, that's nearly you know five months. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That makes me wonder though if it's because I mean they are like obesity is is pretty easy to happen to occur with with them. And so I wonder if actually something like MI is, is probably almost beneficial to them in a sense that they're they're forced to use those fat reserves that they you know they never really shed otherwise. Yeah. So I wonder if it's like a good reset sort of for their system, and I don't know. It's just you can think well, about this stuff all day. It definitely follows the pattern of wild females. I mean, they they don't they definitely try to you know take in as much as they can, and females that are undersized. You know, um, you know, won't breed. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like they know if they have enough internal mass to pull it off. Well, I mean, think about in the wild too. Like they're, I mean, in captivity, they're not eating for five months. But after they lay, how much longer are they going in the wild without eating too? Yeah, like it's well, not, you know, it's, it's crazy. Funny, you know, when um, we did these arboreal symposiums back in the early two thousands. We had a speaker come out from Australia who had done several field studies at that point and was actually the first to do so before uh, Daniel Natouche. Um, and I remember him, and and he hit tagged quite a few um, of the Australian um, green trees, and he never found a female over 1,000 grams. Really? Yeah. Yep. See, that's not terribly surprising to me because, I mean, obviously the ones in captivity we have are going to be significantly larger than than what you're likely to find in the wild. But at the same time, like you go on iNaturalist, I've seen there's there's one individual in particular that I saw a picture of. That was a big chondro, but it was also from sort of the, the annexed part of Papua New Guinea, like the, the right side that no one ever goes to. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, and then Biox. You know, I mean, there's a lot of localities that tend to be bigger, mm-hmm. you know, in general, um, you know, and it could be just a byproduct of the Australian species kind of being a smaller, you know, overall, you know, um, you know, population. Mm-hmm. Because that animal that Swatak brought back back in the 70s was pretty big. The one that was, you know, kind of folded over inside the bamboo. Mm hmm. I was in the pages of Reptiles magazine back in the nineties. So I think I I may have asked you this on the Conjurecast episode. So forgive me for not remembering. But I remember like the first time I met you at Carpet Fest for twenty nineteen, I had asked you, you know, what you were producing that year, and you kind of laughed. You're like, I haven't produced anything in ten years. Like, what was the sort of the deciding factor to like slow down on breeding or stop breeding green trees in general 
Um, I think part of it was just transitions in my own life. Um, you know, going through a divorce, moving from place to place was one thing. Um, yeah, I've always kind of had diverse interest in reptiles. So, you know, I kind of focused on other things. Um, so that's, that's been, you know, a lot of it. And I think the other part of it was, I just kind of felt like there were so many other people out there producing so many cool things. Um, you know, I just didn't know that there was anything I had that would add anything to it. Um, your work was done. Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know that that was sort of the intention or, or plan, but just kind of happened that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then quite, and then honestly, I mean, I, I kind of got tired of them. You know, I, I mean, I love the adults. And I, I'm not, <laughs> the babies you know, are a nightmare. Well, you know, and I, I've, I've always, you know, um, I never, I never lost a baby to starvation. I was frequently uh, called to people's houses to get stubborn feeders going. Um, you know, kind of a, I guess a gift to that or acquired a gift to, to dealing with that um although at this point i you know i think you know buddy bashemi's is probably as good if not better um but but they can be a real hassle and then you got the prolapse issues and then there was you know the cigar back issues that we couldn't really explain and so there were so many like little aggravations long before nato came along right that just kind of you know it just kind of you know kind of became not enjoyable for me. And then, you know, when you breed and produce some other things, like, you know, last few years, I was lucky enough to produce some annulated boas. And, you know, those babies start right from the beginning, feeding great, no problems, pleasant to work with. Stress-free. Like, wow, these are kind of nice. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, But, um, so, I mean, partly it's been, you know, that as well. Um. You know, because it's, 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 you know, and I admire, you know, um, you know, my nephew Christian and, and several of the other breeders that produce large numbers of these things several years in a row, because man, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I remember even back in my first few litters, um, I mean, it got to a point where I just didn't even want to go in the snake room (laughs) (laughs) because I, because I knew there were babies there I needed to deal with and I just didn't want to deal with them, you know? So we know the feeling we know. Yeah. You know, so, um, that's something I've always been a proponent of is like have the stuff that is headache inducing, but then also have the species that you don't even really have to think about to produce like balance, balance the, the headaches with the, the relaxation, you know, like have yeah, the, the corns and bears. The litters, if you can spread the litters out, that kind of thing. That too. And, um, you know, and I think the other part of it too, that, that kind of played a role in it that I didn't really think much of until, you know, fairly recently was, you know, when you think about it, you know, the area where I live up here in Maryland was a real big hotbed of major condo mm-hmm. people. You know, um, you had Trooper, you had Buddy Getzker, you had um, you had me, you had um, uh, Greg Stevens. Um, you know, Paul August was in it for a while. 
Um, of course, Buddy Buscemi still in it. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of things going on. You know, of course, you had Trooper John Holland, um, who became the eventual owner of Mr. Blue. Um, and even my nephew. So there was a lot of sort of camaraderie with it uh, locally that has since kind of dissipated. Um, and I think that probably kind of dissipated with my, you know, or played a part in the dissipation of my own interest, mm-hmm. you know, in it as well. I mean, I still have some. I just, you yeah, know. What do you have actually, now? Um, well, I have a couple of babies still, or not babies anymore, but I have a couple of males from a breeding that uh, Cody did. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, Morpheus um, stuff? I had a few. I'm sorry? Is it the Morpheus stuff? Um, no, these were the ones from my male. What? No, to his, um, to his female. Who was the name of her? Um, you know, the, the one that was the Nido Negative, mm-hmm. you know, clutch that he produced. Um, the sire was a male of mine that went along in the collection sale that he, you know, bought from Barry. I got you. So I wound up getting uh, five babies out of that litter. Um, you know, I was nice to him because um, he went through some, you know, troubles. I mean, oh, first yeah. of all, you know, realizing that the litter was, you know, had a disease issue with it. And, um, you know, and they paid out a lot of money for that collection. So when they, um, when they took that animal, you know, he didn't have any money for it. And I, told him i was fine with it you know if he just produced anything we'll split it somehow mm-hmm. so but then i wound up taking four animals that hadn't fed up to that point and they were already a couple of months old you know i knew they'd probably die in his hands that's <laughs> not well it's nothing against you know nothing against cody i don't want to blow him up but you know um but you know he had a lot he had a lot of animals yeah and at that he, time, he, he still had, does yeah, he still well, does he still, <laughs> Well, he still does, and he also had a lot of um, new imported animals, you know, um, that he got in a bunch of death adders and mm-hmm. other animals that had also um, required, you know, a lot of time to get going. You know what I mean? So, you know, just as a courtesy, I just, you know, I knew I could get him going because I didn't have a lot of other babies at the time, so um, and didn't have any chondro babies, so it, it wasn't that big of a deal. So, like I said, it wasn't so much that slight him for it but i mean i just knew take some of the workload off of them yeah take some of the you know the work because at that point they did need more intensive Mm -hmm. you know care and it took a little while to get you know a couple of them going so yeah it's way it's way easier to do four or five babies than to do an entire room of babies yeah and it's also easier too if you've been through it a few times you know um you know i don't know and i can't remember um if he had actually produced conjures before that might have even been, you know, his first litter. And, um, you know, until you have a few litters and you kind of see what you need to do sometimes to push them into eating, um, you know, that that's what really, you know, and that's what really takes, I think some people, you know, when they finally see somebody like me or buddy or somebody else who's hatched several litters, really go after babies to get them going you kind of get the idea of what you actually need to do you wouldn't you know you you see them as kind of delicate but you do sometimes need to 
you know, to, to really push them yeah. to get them going. Yeah, I remember I, I just fed mouse tails with a, a decent chunk of mine. And, I mean, they were, I will say, they are they are tougher than than I think they get credit for. Yeah, by and large. I mean, if you can find some things that work, I know, you know, and it, what was interesting was what used to work for trooper sending-wise didn't work for me. Um, you know, he would bring a chick home from the zoo, a live chick, uh, kill it, cut it open, and then basically dip black pinkies in the, in the fresh warm blood of the chick. And I worked miracles for him. I tried, it didn't work for me, but mm-hmm. then I started peeling off, you know, the fine down feathers off the neck and sticking them to a wet pinky. And that worked like a champ. Yeah. That, I mean, once I, once I did that with mine, it was like a, I mean, they immediately like no issues, grabbed it, wrapped it. Yeah. It cool. I mean, I still it's remember insane. I turned around probably five out of seven stubborn feeders on the very first night I tried that. And that was good because I was getting to my wits end, you know, and, and I remember having a few conversations with Trooper about what the hell do you do with these things when they're they're not eating. And he basically instilled in me, he's like, look, you just got to piss them off. Mm-hmm. Just piss them off. Just pinch them. Just do what you got to do. You Be, know, beat the so, hell out of them with the pinky. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you find you can sometimes tap them in the right location and out of reflex, they'll grab it and wrap mm-hmm. it. And of course, sometimes I'll let it go and spit it out. And it's like start over again. And sometimes some of them make you go through that little ritual several times before they finally eat it. I'll never forget. I had a friend, uh, my friend Chris, he had like probably 45 babies. And he calls me and he's like, hey, man, what are you doing tonight? I said, I'm just hanging out. Oh, why don't you come over to the house? I'm just going to feed some baby chondros. I was like, all right. <laughs> you suck. And, uh, I see where this is going. Well, <laughs> I get to his house and, you know, he's been my one of my best friends for decades. And I walk in his house and all the lights are off. And I'm like, is he not home? And I'm like, hey, where are you? And I, he, he's in the kitchen. The whole house, all the lights are off. And I flip the lights switch on, and he screams at me, turn the light off! <laughs> and I realize he had a red bulb lamp in the corner, and he's sitting at the kitchen table with 50 deli cups. And he oh, has a, a pinky head on tweezers, and he's tease-feeding them in the darkness. But he got all, he got them all to do it. <laughs> yeah. So be even better if he had night vision goggles on. Right, right. Right. Well, and that's another, you know, sort of technique that, you know, I've, um, I've passed along to people is, you know, it's always better, like I used to keep them in these little, these little Phillips. I don't know if you remember, they're kind of hard plastic shoe boxes. Um, yeah. Can't find them anymore. Um, but anyways, I would line up like six or seven in a row and just go right down the line then start over again. Mm-hmm. So instead of just focusing on one at a time, I would focus on, you know, like five or six at a time. Um, yeah. And just kind of work your way down because what you would find is, you know, it's either going to be fight or flight. They're either going to sit there and they'll, they'll, they'll strike at it or they're just going to run. And so the runners, you just figure, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to put the lid back on. I'll come back to you. And you'll find if you come back to them a few times, they won't run anymore. They'll sit and, you know, stay on their ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just focused on one at a time, you wouldn't really see those, you know, those patterns as much. And you'd wind up just getting frustrated, just trying to deal with one at a time. So I found it useful to kind of 
give them breaks in between and just kind of work several at a time. Yeah, yeah how many times you, you finally get them to latch on and then you go to close the lid of the container or whatever and they just drop it because of the lid. Oh, shit, you just don't move. You don't put the lid yeah. back on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you think it's you think oh, he's got it, he's got it. All right, don't breathe, don't breathe. Just put the lid on, and then the minute you like move two inches, bat. Yep, I remember so. several times just sitting there like a mannequin, standing still for minutes that seemed like they were hours, and I'm like, Jesus, will you just do something? <laughs> and they'll just hold on to it forever and not do a damn thing, and you're just like, oh, this is crazy. It's even worse when you got to piss or sneeze. Yep. Yep. See, I always yeah. had the, the dog walk over and, like, sniff what you're doing and knock something over. and uh, <laughs> You know, I, I always tell the story. We, we had a bunch of baby eyelash vipers. We used to keep them in, a, for lack of a better word, those, like, wonton soup plastic containers. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, those tall yeah. delis. Yeah. And we would, we would just put about an inch of water at the bottom with uh, a piece of fake vine, like the vine on a wire, through the, the middle of the, t- of the deli. And we would just sit there with, you know, 20 deli cups with all the lids off and just go around to each one and piss off each one. Oh, that one took. Don't move. Don't move. It's the same yeah. thing, man. Just yeah, I'd imagine make... with some of those small arboreal vipers, it's probably much the same. Yeah, struggle. very, very, very similar. Yeah. You know? I will say, though, it is cool because the chondros are less apt, in my opinion, to fly away. Mm. Well, as I feel like, like baby eyelashes or baby squams, like once you start to piss them off with the prey item, they're like, oh, I'm out. Bye. So, yeah, and they just flatter it off. Yeah. No. Well, I'm not I'm not screwing around this, you know, this time. I'm just going to go straight to chick down. That whole trying to get them to eat the first time to say that I could, it's, uh, sorry, not, I don't care. I'll take last place in that, that competition. I just want to get them going. Yeah. Well, something like that. I mean, it's, re- you know, readily available. It's, it's not hard to to wean them off of that, you know. So it's not a bad strategy. Yeah. I, well, I mean, just seeing the difference the first time around that it made. It oh like, yeah. Why am I even wasting my time something doing? In the, yeah. Something in the scent that they liked. And it's not like we don't all have chicks in our freezer anyway. Like, let's be real. Right. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I wasn't, I wasn't being sarcastic. Talk. Yeah. Yeah, and another thing you can try, too, is quail. Her quail sometimes works well. Yeah, yeah Brahms had tricks. really good success with uh, parakeet down. Okay, yep. I, my PetSmart keeps their parakeets impeccably clean, so I never got any. But I did I did have a, ch- I have a chick from the, from the first time. I don't know if it's going to work. It might be sort of old now and not have the scent that it did, but... Freezer burned. Yeah, I mean, you can buy like Perfect Prey sells like a five pack of chicks for, I think they're it's not even like ten bucks, but shipping's an extra like twenty or twenty five. So I don't mind forking over that to get some chicks that are, you know, vacuum sealed and all that stuff. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's worth it. Because I well, I have a vacuum sealer that I use for the mice now, so I can just take one out, reseal the others, and you know, keep them keep them fresh. Oh yeah. Well, they might they might prefer putrid too, you know. Yeah, it's possible. Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but we're almost at two hours. So, really? Well, 
If anybody has any questions pertaining to MI, where should they go if they want to get in contact with you? Oh, with me? Uh, they could just email me or text me or whatever. He's on Instagram. He's on Facebook. Hunt him down. Find him. Always happy to share. Well, once again, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. A privilege. <laughs> Appreciate it, guys. You may not Best think of luck on the MI. I want to see, want to see the good pictures. You know. Oh yeah, I'll send you some. The, You'll uh, like it though. If if she takes to it, it's it it's pretty rewarding and it's pretty cool. Once they start hatching out and you get some pictures of that, I mean, it's mm-hmm. you know fun to watch. Yeah, I'm. Uh... And you'll and you'll see her stick her head in the middle, you know, the coil too, and mm-hmm. you'll be wondering the same thing: is she using her heat sensory pits to monitor that or not? Yeah, I'm feeling much more much more confident about it this round. So. You got this, bro. I'm you sticking it. to it. Damn it. I'm not going to bitch out. Well, it's got to be easier than, than, than artificial, you know, because you're basically just letting the female do it all, you know? Right. Which is convenient, too. But I'm going to have the... It's, uh, it's hard to fight the neuroticness, you know? It is. I think it just... You want you want to have the... Like, people feel better behind the wheel, I guess. Of course. You know? Of course. It's like being in an airplane... I don't want to be in that thing, and I'm not the one flying it. Even if I'm not qualified to fly it, it's just something about <laughs> being at the the mercy of human beings and mechanical failure. I just I don't not a fan, not a fan of planes. Yeah. So I don't know, but uh, yeah. Once again, thank you. Even though I know you will not take yes. credit for a lot of it, you are the one who is. Help shape the Condor community into what it is. Legitimately. Probably, probably one of the few still around that remember half the things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's, I mean, I'm not kidding in that way because, you know, um, you know, it's, it's hard to get, you know, Eugene to talk about mm-hmm. the old days, you know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of the older guys just aren't around anymore. Like Swatak, you can't track him down anymore. Um, Al Zulich can't track him down anymore. These are all guys that sort of predated me. And, you know, of course, like I said earlier, Trooper's health is not very good. I occasionally, you know, correspond with him, but, um, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's just hanging in there. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and I keep pestering him about, you know, trying to go through some of his, you know, photos and other, you know, things that he has from the zoo days. Um, I just don't know if year, a couple of years ago, I was a little more optimistic about that happening. Now I'm not so much, which is a shame because, you know, he, he definitely, um, documented everything he did. Um, and so I'm sure he's sitting on a wealth of stuff that any condo historian would just love to get their hands on or see. Definitely. So. Yeah. So there's, like I said, not a lot, you know, people, and even like Buddy Buscemi, I was the one who got him into condos. Um, you know, he got into them probably, um, I guess, is four or five, maybe six years after I did. Um, 
So, you know, Buddy Getzker is no longer around. And so, yes, there's not too many, you know, not too many people that, you know, from back then, and Gary Sipperly comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's the guy in Ohio. Of course, Greg Maxwell doesn't want to, you know, doesn't really talk about it much anymore. Yeah. Um, you have, uh, who's the other guy that was in Ohio? Jeff Hudson. Um, mm-hmm. He was the one, he was the one who owned Dream. You might remember the female Dream. Yes. Um, so he was the owner of her. Um, you know, Christian's probably pretty good. You know, he, 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 he um, looked back a lot on some of the earlier stuff as well. So he's, he's probably one of the most knowledgeable people about some of the early genetic stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Definitely. All right, man. We'll let you have the rest of your evening back. <laughs> it's all good, yeah. guys. Thank you again, man. man. Good hanging out. Good, good reminiscing. And, Absolutely. You know, talking about this stuff. Good to get it, you know, down on some sort of record, anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for coming on. Yes. Yeah, man. Thank you. Pleasure, gentlemen. Have a good one. Happy you too. Uh, Thanksgiving. Happy you Thanksgiving. Too? Yep. Cheers. Later. Bye. Alrighty. Episode awesome. 103. Always, Super honored. Dude, he's awesome, man. Like He's, he's always, awesome. I really enjoy talking to him all the time. And he's like a huge fan of the magazine, which when he told me that was like a really big deal. You know, he's been helping yeah. hunt down some content. And, you know, he did the, the Blue Line article and the Mr. Blue article. And, you know, it's just awesome to be able to, to help document that stuff and, and sort of keep it out there so people can still find it, you know. Totally. I mean, it just goes back to that. Like I said earlier, man, we, we say it all the time. It's like, this is the only hobby. This is the only community where, I mean, I hate using the word heroes, you know, cause it, you know, pedestals people, but you get to meet your heroes, you know? Yeah. You know, veterans of our community are around to chit chat. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. And wealths of knowledge, you know, they paved the way for us. Right. And like, I mean, that's like I was saying in the beginning, like if he hadn't, done what he did you know with that that runt and the yeah you know the blue stuff like who knows if we'd even have that stuff now and all the animals that have that have come from that and yeah i feel like eventually we we may have hit some of the blue stuff but i mean who knows it could have never happened there's like small like pairings and stuff that that if they had never happened we wouldn't have a lot of what we have now and to think that it was just based off someone's decision that you know this animal's really interesting i think i'm gonna pair it to this and if they hadn't right. done that, you know, I don't know, like the butterfly effect in a sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, and, you know it, it's 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 kind of morbid when we talk about, you know, Trooper and all the animals that he may have lost over the years. But at the same time, think about all the knowledge that we gained mm-hmm. and the animals that we got out of it. And it's it's an awesome story. It's a, it's a story that's not ended. It's not it's not finished. It's going to continue to go on. That's the best part. Yeah. Well. This show was once again brought to you by MP Cages and Exotics and Steve's Snake Chewery. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Awesome hot sauces, awesome racks and cages. You need to hunt them down if you need both, which I think you do need both. Everyone needs both. 
Everyone needs both. Everyone needs both. Uh, we will see you all Monday night for Snakes and Stogies, obviously. Mondays at 9. <clears throat> Mondays at 9. Uh, I was actually talking to Travis Wyman today about about doing something on the live stream, some Nido-related cool. stuff. Uh, that he he Heck actually yeah. came to me today and was asking me if if that we need to do something because uh, apparently there's been some information put out recently about Nido and stuff that that he said there's just a lot of a lot of it was just very inaccurate and so I was like okay well, malarkey let's get you and he has a a vet buddy um, that's involved in it in some capacity and so I was like both y'all come on snakes and stogies we'll do it live people can ask questions all that good stuff so awesome we're gonna figure Dude, out when gonna that's gonna so happen so great yeah. It'll be a good one. I don't. Yeah, I mean, actually, I want to do yeah. it this Monday, but at the same time, Chris is off, and Chris wants to wants to come on. So, all right, we'll see. Well, then, yeah, let's just we'll do a casual one with Chris this Monday, and we'll we'll set the thing up with the doc soon. Word. Actually, I messaged him yesterday because uh, I've got a I got a female puff adder that I don't know how it oh, happened. Yeah, I was yeah, t- yeah. She basically got, it looks like a piece of aspen stuck in her gums, and it kind of got a little bit of an infection. It doesn't look discolored. It doesn't look pussy, but, like, it almost looks like she got punched in the face. Like, it looks like she's got a fat lip. Mm-hmm. And uh, I pulled some some aspen that had happened to stick to it because, you know, it's it's exposed gums. Right. And she kind of let me do it with the, with the hemostats, of course. And then I pulled on one piece, and it was, like, tethered. I guess it was, like, hooked onto a, a small tooth, and uh, that did not go over well. So, uh, Is it a big puff was, or a small puff? Uh, she's probably almost four, maybe three and a half foot, but maybe as thick as your wrist, maybe. Not not a big That's snake, but... Not a small one, either. <laughs> not a small one, but, uh, you know, my, my whole thing was, I remember you and, you and Travis had told me that, you know, SFAG was antimicrobial. I couldn't remember, and I want to make sure. So I messaged him about that. I messaged you about that when I couldn't get a hold of him. And mm-hmm. um, he wound up getting back to me. And what I wound up doing was I got a bunch of sphagnum moss dry, like, you know, blank, untouched sphag. Yeah, yeah. And then layered the whole bottom of the tub with it. And then I poured in chlorhexidine as the hydrant. Mm-hmm. And I matted it down so it was just damp enough to make, like, it not poofy, you right. know? And, but not enough humidity that it would be a swampy mess in two days. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to check her uh, probably tomorrow and make sure that she's good and go from there. I, I watched it with Chlorhex, but we, we were trying to figure out what oral, you know, what, what, what could I put in her mouth to help reduce that infection that would not be bad right. orally. Right. You know what I mean? And, uh, and then we talked about tubing and how that is not going to happen. <laughs> There's why several not? reasons why, several reasons why I do not pin the bitish genus, nor do I use restraining tubes unless absolutely necessary. So, they're very good about somehow magically getting sneaking a tooth, the big the big nasty tooth, into a hand. Oh yeah, of course, absolutely. It's borderline dude, I mystical. Was, I was I was telling the doc like, I've had puffs that were two foot, and I put them in a restraining tube so that I can you know peel off a piece of scale or something or like pull the skin off their, the shed off their tail or something. And they thrash so quick, so hard that my hand naturally squeezes and the tube will crack. And I don't mean like at the base, I mean like it'll split up the middle and now I've got basically a puff out of my hand. 
and I have to just throw it in the trash can, you know, real quick, or the ret- re- uh, restraining can, you know. So that's why I don't I don't like tubing fat thrashy snakes. So, hmm. but yeah, we got to get the doc on, man. Definitely be awesome. So, Most closing definitely. remarks. I have none. You have none. Nice. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next week, be it Snakes and Stogies or THP 104. Or both. Even though I don't... When's Thanksgiving? That's Oh, Thanksgiving's Thursday. Ooh, so... Okay, so then we'll see y'all on December 3rd. Or unless we do... I don't know. We'll have to see. THP may we either... Do something. It may be before or it may be after. We'll We'll have to adjust accordingly. You got to see if you're not doing family stuff, we could do the 11 o'clock open face sandwich hour. <laughs> I mean, that's a thing, right? I, I guess so. You tell me that you don't have an open face turkey sandwich at like 11 o'clock at night after Thanksgiving. I, I usually don't. What is wrong with you? I eat so much at the normal dinner that I don't feel the, the need to have a second. Yeah, but you eat at like 4 o'clock because it's Thanksgiving. 430 mm. and then right around 536 o'clock people are all fat and happy they're watching football whatever and then right around 10 30 11 it's open face time baby mm. i don't think so not for me sorry oh my god but if i'm you gonna gorge myself if, on pumpkin pie if you want to enjoy your open face turkey sandwich whatever open face means uh feel free All right. We'll see y'all later.